You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 25 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is off in cyberspace somewhere saving a server from nefarious people. Uh, so today we're coming to you from the Sage and Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And if this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Uh, the Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, soon-to-be Apple Podcasts, uh, Android, email, and on Google Play. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website at thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, joining us via FaceTime is Allison Macrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project. Allison is also involved with the TOR Project, and you can learn more about the Library Freedom Product at libraryfreedomproject.org and at torproject.org. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to be talking with Allison today about uh, the Library Freedom Project and what libraries can do, uh, should do, but don't do regarding uh, library staff and patron privacy. But first, let's learn more about Allison. So tell us about your background and uh, how you came to uh, library land. Um, you know, p- probably pretty typical. I had an interest in the uh, kind of social justice side of library work. Um, when I was in college, the um, library opposition to the USA Patriot Act um, happened, and I, I really admired that the profession came out so strongly in favor of things like privacy and civil liberties. And so, you know, that was really the deciding factor for me. Um, and I, I got my IMLS, I'm sorry, not my IMLS, that's the, that's the funding organization, my MLIS, I always confuse those, in 2009, I graduated. Okay. Uh, and how many libraries have you worked in? I think like five something like that. I've worked in public libraries, archives, and academic libraries. And that usually seems to be the way with, uh, with libraries. Librarians never start in one library and finish their entire career in the same library. So it's uh, interesting to see that it's happened that way with you too. Uh, have you always been kind of tech savvy? Did you study it in school? or? No, I'm pretty much self-taught entirely. I, I got interested, um, you know, through working in libraries and, um, just kind of, you know, pursued a few different uh, paths of teaching myself different pieces of technology and how my computer worked. And that's pretty funny, too, because uh, when you talk about people that work in libraries, that usually, unless they're working in IT, uh, that's what usually seems to happen. You kind of become self-taught. I guess sometimes it's out of necessity, too. Um, So tell us about the Library Freedom Project. How did it begin? How is it funded? All that kind of fun stuff. Tell us how it all started. The Library Freedom Project is an initiative that aims to make real the promise of intellectual freedom in libraries, and by that we mean um, we want to take the commitment to privacy and intellectual freedom that libraries have had for many years as part of our core values and turn it into something much more practical for our patrons. Um, I started it in 2013 after the revelations about NSA mass surveillance, and I get funding from different uh, foundations. Is it hard to, to get that to get funding and find foundations that are willing to um, 
to uh, help you with your project? I mean, it's hard in the sense that grant writing is, is hard and um, it's, it takes up a big chunk of time, but I've been pretty successful with it. That's great. Uh, so what resources does uh, the Library Freedom Project provide to libraries and librarians? We teach practical privacy trainings for librarians, so helping them understand um, how to use technology, what privacy issues exist. We make resources for teaching privacy classes. We do, um, you know, policy review and um, other kinds of, like, you know, organizational writing type things, you know, vendor agreements and that sort of stuff. So um, just trying to inject privacy into every area of, of library work. So if uh, an organization or a library wanted to host a program with the Library Freedom Project, how would they go about getting in touch with you and setting something up? They can write to us at info at libraryfreedomproject.org. Okay. We'll do see you, if we're available. Do you usually um, charge a fee for the service? It depends on the kind of library. Um, we have a sliding scale. So if a library has um, you know, a professional development budget and can fund us that way, then that's great. If they can't, um, we can usually work something out. Excellent. Tell us about um, the privacy-centric paradigm shift and what you can tell librarians around the world, uh, you know, how we can affect this shift. Well, I think that we've had a, um, a theoretical commitment to privacy as part of the core values of librarianship, but I don't think that's always translated into practical uh, efforts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I say privacy-centric paradigm shift, I think what I want librarians to do is put privacy at the core of all of our work and understand how essential it is to things like intellectual freedom. So, um, for example, you know, making the decision to... Uh, purchase some new database or online service of some kind, uh, we have to be thinking about what the privacy trade-offs are, and unfortunately we haven't been doing that for years. That makes some sense, too. And, and it even, I, I don't know if you ever deal with um, how libraries deal with the information um, in their ILS um, and with regard to patron privacy. Do you, do you handle that at all, too? Yeah, pretty much everything. I mean, I, I think uh, when it comes to library software and vendors and things like that, uh, we focus mostly on a set of best practices about deleting patron information and, and having secure connections in transit and secure data storage and that kind of thing. Okay, very interesting. Uh, so we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with Allison about libraries and privacy, uh, both personal and digital. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and we're back with Alison McCrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project. 
So the internet is a person and, and personal privacy, which seem to go hand in hand these days, has become uh, such a large part of everyone's lives. It seems to, you know, we have to wade through scams on a daily basis, whether it's another annoying cell phone call from the quote-unquote IRS, uh, those spam calls or calls, you know, from your credit card asking you if you bought, you know, a 60-inch 4K TV in Indonesia. Um, what are some of the very simple things that we can do to protect ourselves from these issues and how do we, as librarians, educate patrons with regard to digital security? Well, regarding uh, scams in particular, I think that um, that's a really difficult problem to solve for because there's very little regulation uh, when it comes to like all these private companies kind of trading in your data and creating dossiers about you and things like that. This is something that the FTC should be handling on behalf of consumers, um, and they, they just don't. Um, so to that, I think it's, I mean, there, there are some, there are a number of best practices around, you know, avoiding scam emails and, and phishing attempts and things like that. And those include things like, you know, don't click on any links that come from an email when you're not expecting the link. Don't open any attachments from an email you weren't expecting, and that is in, that includes from a contact that you know, because contact email addresses can be spoofed really easily. Um, but a lot of these are are very savvy, and they use different kinds of tricks, like social engineering, which is um, pretending to be a legitimate service and using um, using that to to gain information about somebody. Um, so to me, I think the scam stuff needs a, a set of political solutions rather than technical solutions. We need better, we need to advocate for better regulation. Um, as for teaching patrons about digital security, um, I think that the most important first step is that we librarians need to understand it. Um, there is a real gap in our, our knowledge of when it comes to, to security and privacy, and I think that that's for a few different reasons. There is no meaningful curriculum in library school around privacy. I think that's starting to change a little bit, uh, but it certainly hasn't been true in the past. Um, and so we don't, if you know, we, we need to start by, by kind of understanding how to use different tools and strategies ourselves. And then from there, um, we, can, we can take what we know and bring it to patrons. And I think the best way to start that is to incorporate privacy strategies and technologies in um, existing internet uh, classes. So like intro to the internet or um, any kind of basic computer education that you're teaching, it's a, it's a good place to start by including a couple of, of things that are privacy focused. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up with regard to um, with librarians not knowing or maybe not being as educated in, in security. Um, one thing that we do here at Station is we teach a lot of uh, classes using Apple products. And the biggest thing, or the, I guess the biggest misnomer, is that, uh, well, Apple is secure. They don't get viruses. But what patrons and, and the general public probably don't really understand is that they're not immune from viruses, from hacking, or from using it as a conduit to, uh, to get information about you. Um, right. So, I mean, have you had an experience with some of the Apple products where that's been an issue? Or is it just something that's more broad, you know, with regards to, like, Internet things, like HTML and things like that? I, I think it's, it's more broad. I mean, Apple products are 
significantly more secure. Um, that is a something that Apple as a company has prioritized. Um, it doesn't mean that they're immune from compromise, but um, you know, iPhones, for example, have um, application sandboxing. Uh, Android phones don't have that at all, and application sandboxing means, you know, that um, if you if if something happens to an app on your phone and it gets compromised somehow, it won't affect the rest of the system. Um, the problem, as far as I see it, is that Apple is also the most expensive platform for mobile and for desktop, and so it's really out of reach for a lot of the people that we see every day in the library. Right. Uh, so kind of transversing to um, talking about email, um, it was once the new hot you know, electronic way to communicate, and now it's kind of gone to the wayside maybe not so much for businesses and, and for some people, but texting seems to have taken over um, as the, the main digital um, form of communication. And emails, you know, kind of become the old way of communicating. And so many scams have, you know, come by way of email, and you're already saying things like, you know, don't open attachments from people you don't know and, and that sort of thing. Um, but what can librarians to help pa- do to help patrons with the privacy rights regarding uh, education with email other than, you know, the simple things like not opening attachments and, and things like that. Would you recommend, uh, do you think that there's um, email services that are a little more secure than others? or? Well, there there are, but the problem is is that they're all quite difficult to use and they're, um, they're out of reach technically for a lot of the people that we interact with. And so um, email encryption is, is something that has not yet... Um, become usable enough uh, for, for like a, an everyday user. There are some projects that are compelling, like things like ProtonMail that attempt to make it a lot easier, but I still don't really think they're in a place where most of the general public can, can really understand them and use them properly. And the, the, um, the possibility for failure is really high. Um, also, I think that ProtonMail has some some different practices that are not great for security, like um, uh, it apparently by default it stores things like your private keys. And so uh, what I usually tell people is to treat email like it's completely public and not use it for anything that you need to have privacy for. And I know that's a really difficult um, calculus to make, but it's it's the unfortunate circumstances. Now that said, um, it's possible to have... Um, you know, some to use some email service providers that provide um, better security defaults, not end-to-end encryption in the sense that that ProtonMail does. And the difference is that um, what I mean by end-to-end encryption in ProtonMail is that um, the content of your messages is encrypted between you and um, whoever is whoever you're sending the email to. Um, that's that's the thing that's really hard to get from email. Something that's a lot easier to get is uh, better transit security, so email that uses um, email service providers that uh, send and receive email in secure ways and um, that store it in secure ways. Now, the content is still readable to the service provider, um, but it's a lot more secure from like a, like a hacker or something like that. And so a, a good option for, for that kind of security is just something like Gmail. I mean, Gmail has really good... Um, really good uh, security practices when it comes to those things. That said, Gmail will data mine 
all of your messages and use it to sell you products and create um, basically a dossier on you and sell that information to advertisers. And so there's a serious security and privacy trade-off. They often overlap, but they don't always. Well, I was just going to, while you were saying that, the first thing I thought of was um, what happens if um, a government agency feels the need for whatever reason to try to get information like that as well. Um, obviously, they need a subpoena, but uh, you know, what would stop a government agency from even looking into some of those things? And especially if you're talking about something that's an intimate in nature or something that may be um, maybe out of vogue with the, the current administration is doing the investigating, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're, they were well within their capabilities to do that. And, and law enforcement has a lot of ability to, um, like it's subpoena power, especially over private companies is pretty vast. Um, so if you're going to use a, a private company to provide your email, you should be aware of what their, um, what their practices are with regard to law enforcement. So Google has been pretty good. Um, they have, uh, my understanding is that they have um, they've fought back against some uh, government data requests, um, and they disclose information to their users about those requests when possible. Um, you know, the 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 alternative is to um, I mean, there really are very few alternatives for people. Honestly, I mean, you can you can use an email service provider that. Um, is not a giant private corporation like Google, but they probably won't have the resources to protect you if there is a subpoena about your data. Um, and, you know, that's, that's basically it. I mean, if you, if you don't use encrypted email, um, that information is just easy to, to obtain, basically. And, so, and encrypted email is really hard to set up. I mean, I, I don't recommend it for most people. Oh, I'm sure it's it's not something that's easy to do. Um, I mean, just look at what happened with Yahoo, right? Right. Yeah, Yahoo is a real mess. Um, so one thing that we see sometimes with patrons, especially with elderly patrons, um, and maybe not even elderly is the right word, maybe older, maybe mid-50s and older, um, is, and it's kind of interesting, it's the use of AOL for email. Uh, I think it's pretty, actually kind of funny that AOL is still out there uh, doing what they're doing, which is, you know, providing services. But uh, we used to call it uh, AOL is uh, the Internet with training wheels. And what's your feeling on AOL email with regard to security and those kinds of things? Because it seems like the, the, one of the more vulnerable um, sectors or, or segments of our community are the people who are over 55. That's absolutely right. Um I don't really know anything about AOL security practices, but I don't, but that's, that doesn't, that doesn't mean good things for them. I mean, um, I have, I, I don't have any reason to believe that they, um, they don't have the funding to attract good security engineers. They don't have any kind of reputation. Um, I think AOL probably, probably there, I would, venture to guess that their security practices are pretty bad, just given um, kind of where they are in the internet landscape right now. But I, I really don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing that librarians can do is try to migrate um, more vulnerable patrons to a, to a more secure platform like Gmail. 
Yeah, that makes some sense. We actually here in, in Suffolk County, um, we discontinued about, I guess, three or four years ago. We used to run uh, email service for patrons uh, through what we called Suffolk Web. And it became such a, a cumbersome thing to maintain that we, uh, we meaning the county, um, our Suffolk Cooperative Library System, decided to uh, end the program. And you can imagine it, all the shock and horror it caused the people who you know don't necessarily know how to set up email and, and that kind of thing. But like you were saying before, the encryption and the, the data that has to be kept with regard to that and, and maintaining a server that does that was just way too much for them to, to take care of anymore. Um, so, you know, and one other thing I find interesting, too, is there there's, I guess it's a federal law with regard to businesses and libraries are included in that we have to archive a certain amount of years of your email. That's right. Uh, is it five I years? I, I think it's five years, right? I don't. I don't actually know what it is, but um, but yeah, um, our public libraries are subject to to records requests, definitely. Yeah. So let's talk about text messaging because since it's you know the the more popular way to communicate nowadays, um, and I'm talking more about you know phone to phone, um, you know from phone number to phone number, whether it's iMessage with an Apple ID or whether it's using, you know, your Verizon or your um, AT&T, Sprint, uh, regular SMS network. Um, how can we keep our text messages private other than protecting our phone numbers? You know, will texting be the next thing that that could potentially be hacked? Well, there are a lot of really good uh, end-to-end encrypted options for texting, so I think texting is probably going to be okay. Um, iMessage, the platform between iPhones, iOS to iOS devices, mm-hmm. is end-to-end encrypted by default. Um, WhatsApp is now end-to-end encrypted by default. And finally, there's a third platform called Signal, which is uh, which is free for Android and iOS. You can send messages between the two platforms. And it's not only end-to-end encrypted, but it doesn't store any metadata information. So your phone numbers and who you communicate with is not is not subpoenable because they don't keep it. So those are those are all really good options. What about Snapchat? Everybody talks about how Snapchat is great because things disappear and you know it doesn't keep pictures from more than a certain period of time. What's this, the real security story with Snapchat? Snapchat stores all of your data on its servers, so it's only it only disappears from your device, um, and they retain all the rights to your images, so they can reuse them for whatever purpose they see fit. Oh, lovely! So you can they can sell them to for advertisers or, or something else if yep. they needed to. Is yep. that is that the case with iMessage as well, or no? No, iMessage doesn't sell your data, okay. as far as I know. Okay, so surfing the web, you know, on a public computer, which is something you know here at the library, a lot of people do, uh, versus your own personal computers. You know, is there a difference in security, or is it something that would be? Um, Something that is is software based, like you know, if you have Norton on your computer or Kaspersky or or you know a, a software package that that takes care of internet security. Do you think that there's because there's always spam and uh, not spam, uh, you know, phishing scams and and malware that doesn't necessarily get taken care of by uh, virus protection. Um, so, what do you think libraries can do to protect their patrons to rely on public computers? Well, they should keep the software up to date. That's the most important thing um, and is really not something that is um, that seems to be much of a standard. But, I mean, honestly, it's hard to say what's better because 
most people's personal computers don't they don't keep their software up to date either um you know uh removing dangerous software like flash uh from computers um you know using something that uh reboots the machine and wipes all of the uh the former patron session data something like deep freeze mm -hmm. that does that um and you know i mean having some um anti malware client is a good thing um most of them are snake oil they don't do anything and they get root access to your computer and it's it creates more of a problem but there are some that are good i think um one that's that's perfectly decent is eset um although i haven't used it in a few years so i don't know if it's still good but it it used to be um but ke keeping software up to date um you know running updates and not installing random software from third party websites and um and locking down administrative controls these are most of the things you need to do to keep a computer healthy okay so how does the tor browser work in regard to um with you know using your computer to surf the web and what's the difference between that versus using you know uh chrome or uh, safari or internet explorer if there's still people are using that or edge Tor browser doesn't. Tor browser prevents pe people from knowing what websites you visit. Um, if your internet service provider is observing, they can see that you're using Tor. If you're on the library's website, um, the library's website can't see who you really are or what other websites you're visiting. Um, so it's it's a uh, has much higher privacy properties than other web browsers do um, by default. Um, Chrome is good for security, but uh, is not good for privacy. Chrome is good for security for a few reasons, but one is that it uses something, the thing I was talking about before, sandboxing. It sandboxes your, um, your browsing, and so if you click on some malicious link or something like that, um, it, will, um, it will cause the link to fail. Um, I'm sorry, that's... There's a there's a different thing that I was just thinking of that I said that what what Chrome will do is it'll it'll prevent whatever malicious thing from um, infecting the rest of your system. Another reason to use Chrome, especially with Gmail, is that if you get some uh, scam link or attachment in Gmail and you open it in Chrome, then the link will fail. Um, Tor browser, however, um, has just implemented sandboxing. It hasn't come out um, for Windows yet, but it's it's out for um, for uh, OS X and for Linux. Um, and so we're catching up with Chrome um, when it comes to when it comes to security features. Well, how secure? I mean, when you're going to incognito mode with with Chrome, how it, does it work? similar with the Tor browser, kind of with the concept of, uh, you know, not saving your data and, and that kind of thing? Not really. Incognito mode only um, will uh, prevent uh, certain third parties from getting access to your information, but most of the, most of the advertising um, and most of the, the data collection in Chrome browser is from Google itself, so it doesn't protect against that. And it do also doesn't protect your location um, you know, there are a number of other privacy properties that it just doesn't have that Tor Browser has. That's interesting. Um, with Tor Browser also, um, does it store cookies or does it not have the ability to do that? Tor does not store cookies, no. Okay, so does that affect certain websites that require you to have cookies enabled? Um, 
it doesn't do anything to first party cookies. Um, oh, okay. It will prevent third party cookies. Okay, very good. So the old malware, spyware, man- ransomware. You said that most of the most of those um, services are like snake oil, which I kind of found kind of funny. Um, what's the best way to protect against you know, especially ransomware, which is one of the new things? Um, keeping your software up to date. Um, you know, having some good practices about the links you click on and the software that you download um, and keeping backups of your data because then if you get malware, you can just restore from backup. Right. So I know we really haven't talked about it much, but uh, we know that Internet Explorer has kind of reached end of life and almost end of support, I think, if not already ended support with Microsoft. What would you say to to people that, that still like using Internet Explorer? Well, I mean, do they like it more than they value their own security? Because that's, I mean, they're, unfortunately, they're at risk. Um, you know, any any software that's at its end of life um, is no longer receiving, is no longer going to receive security updates. And the longer that it's, you know, that you're using something that doesn't receive security updates, the more out of date that software is going to be, the more security vulnerabilities are going to be. I mean, you're putting yourself at serious risk if you keep on it. It makes sense. And has Edge um, been any better? I, I mean, look, w- Windows, um, Microsoft is not known for its security features. I mean, Windows 10 is better than previous iterations have been, but they're, um, they're still not... They, they still have a lot of privacy holes. Um, you know, there's a lot of consumer demand for better security, but there, for as far as like choosing a good secure web browser, I mean, if you're if you want something that's secure and usable, and you don't, and and you're okay with Google compromising your privacy, then use Chrome. If you want something that's maybe a little bit trickier to use, but is private and and getting more secure all the time um, by default then use Tor Browser. There's no reason to use any other browser. Okay, and it's funny because the, the next thing we wanted, I wanted to talk to you about was Google. Um, and, you know, like you said, there's a lot of benefits to using Chrome and using the Google services. Um, but what are, um, one thing I'm always curious about with people who use Google Docs, Google Sheets, uh, and presentations and, and things like that, how secure is that? Like if somebody were to, is it possible? I mean, obviously, it's probably possible, but um, wouldn't it? Could someone get in there, get into your your Google Drive, and get access to your documents? Google is exceptionally good about security. Um, the only the only real exception to that actually is Android. Um, so I I think that it's 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 pretty um, pretty unlikely that somebody's going to hack Google. Um, plus, they have They've got some really great extra security features like two-factor authentication and things like that. Um, uh, you know, that said, um, it's really hard to use Google in any way where you're not giving all your private information to them. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about Android. Uh, so many friends of mine have had problems with their phones, whether they've been hacked or whether they've had problems with malware or spyware or things like that. What can you tell somebody who uses Android to kind of allay their fears about these kinds of problems? Um, well, I mean, if you use Android, there's, there's, it's, it's a, it's, 
it's a pretty insecure platform, um, and that's a real shame given that it's the most popular mobile platform in the world. Um, you know, there are a number of problems with it. One big problem is that um, uh, since Android is available for so many hardware, um, so, so many um, hardware platforms like Motorola and Samsung and all these that are not manufactured by Google, the only one, the only phone that Google makes itself is the Pixel. Every other um, Android-supportive um, hardware platform gets Android security updates after the Pixel does, and so and and the the range of time I don't know exactly how long it is for each um, for each platform, but it can be significant. And so every Android phone is out of date all the time, except if it's a Pixel, and they go end of life I think after two years. That used to be true for the Nexus phone, which was the old Google. Um, the old Google phone. Um, it might be different for Pixel, but that's the last that I remember it being. Um, so that's a big problem. Um, and uh, and the other thing is that while the iOS store is not um, perfect at removing malicious apps, um, the Android, the Google Play Store, um, is really bad at it. So there are a lot of apps in the store that um, that are that are just um, totally malicious and can give users all kinds of um, all kinds of malware and stuff. Yeah, that is a shame too because the Android operating system is actually a nice operating system to use. It's just that the thing that's always scared me about it is is the insecurity of it all. Right. Um, and it would be a shame if if Pixel reached end of life because they're about a year and a half in, right? No, what I mean is their their devices after two years. They are at the end of their life. So the hardware, at least that was true for for the Nexus phones. I don't right. know. I, I'm just assuming the same is true for Pixel, but I haven't looked into it. So as far as Google goes, they're pretty secure, except for when it comes to their data mining of your information. And, and their Android platform, and yeah. And the Android, yeah. So one of the biggest struggles we have here in the public library world is helping patrons with, with password management. Now, I've given some strategies to, to some of the older patrons um, that, I mean, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. Um, and, and one protocol that I like to use is having three separate passwords that are independent passwords and putting them together, but putting them in different orders. That way, they're, they're random, letters, numbers, characters, but they're in, a sep they're in sets. So you can switch them, switch the order of those three sets so you can remember, well, if my password's not this, then it's this, or it's this, it's that. But one thing I like, especially with people who are, I'm going to say in their 70s, is to, and if they remember the days when phone numbers were like Klondike 3439, um, if they remember a phone number from there, that may be a good password strategy. Because if they've remembered it at this stage in their life, they're probably going to keep remembering it. And another would be the uh, street address of the home they were either born in or they grew up in. Because even though with some of those other sites like Intellius and some of those other places they can pull back old addresses, I don't think they go back that far from pre the pre-digital age. So I always try to recommend those types of strategies for passwords. Is that a good strategy to have or do you have other strategies as well that you recommend to people? Well, the the problem with those is that one, uh, none of them are long enough. And two, um, even if a, an address isn't, um, 
isn't collected by a data broker, um, it could, I mean, it could be easily broken um, uh, with a with a password cracker because computers get about a thousand guesses per second to crack your password, and they try typical patterns first. And addresses are a very common pattern, include and so are birthdays and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but also, people in divulge that sort of information all the time in their security questions. So what I would say is um, don't worry about coming up with, with clever password strategies uh, for all your passwords. Use a password manager like LastPass. Store all your passwords in there. Change them to um, use the random password generator and change them to a, a jumble of letters, numbers, and symbols that means nothing, that has no pattern, that has no personal information in it. And then make the master password the strongest password that they have, and that's the only one that has to be memorized. And a strategy for coming up with that strong master password, um, there's one called the Diceware method. Um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has some great resources on using the Diceware method where you basically you take a die um, and a word list. The word list has, EFF has links to all this, the word list has... Um, a list of a little bit less than 8,000 words. Every word has a corresponding five-digit number. You roll the die, you get five digits. You look to the to the corresponding word for that number, and the word that you've that you've just rolled basically becomes the first word in your passphrase. And you repeat this method until you have a six-word passphrase is a good one for the diceware method. Um, and the strength of this is that it's both uh, secure because you're generating them randomly. Um, they're long because they're six words long, but they're also memorable because they're just English words, but they're not in a pattern because, like I said, you've just generated them with a die. So that's the one you memorize, and then you store all the others in your password manager. The, the password managers are, you know, they're great and everything, but what would you, you suggest for, for an elderly person who has trouble even remembering their passwords? Well, that's why I would suggest a password manager, because then they only have to memorize one. Right, right. Yeah, the, the problem that we have, though, is that most of them are lucky they can check their AOL email. So that's, that's kind of a struggle. Um, but it's, it's just the, the, this, the situation with passwords, unfortunately. I mean, they're a very big vulnerability. Most people's passwords are terrible. Um, there's no easier um, strategy other than using something to store them in. LastPass, as a as a, a usable piece of software, I found that it's, it's pretty good. I mean, it's certainly better than what anyone is doing now. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, the, the, the method that most people use who don't use any kind of password manager is to memorize, um, a very small handful of very weak passwords that are basically variations on each other. And that is just, it's just not good enough. And so if a password manager is too hard for someone to use, um, there isn't a good strategy to recommend them, unfortunately. Okay. Well, that was good. It was good for a try, right? Okay. So we have, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we um, get back, we're going to ask Allison our top 10 library questions, or what we call the 032 list, which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we have to thank Melanie Cardone uh, from the Longwood Public Library for that idea. And if you're a frequent listener to the podcast, then you know that we ask these questions of all our guests. So we'll be back in just a moment.
Okay, we're back talking with Allison Macrina from the Library Freedom Project, uh, who's going to be our next participant in the 032 list, which corresponds to the Dewey Number for Top 10 list. So the questions are inspired by the website Literary Hub, which is a website uh, with informative library-related stories and interviews, and you can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Check them out. They do a great job with educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. So thank you, library, Literary Hub. So what did you want to be when you were a child? Um, I honestly don't really remember. <laughs> I think I wanted to uh, just read books and, and be a child, <laughs> mostly. I think there was a, maybe a time when I had, you know, I think I had like sort of normal child stuff where I went back and forth on things, but I didn't want to be a librarian. <laughs> and that's usually the case. Librarians usually is their second career. Um, so, well, no, I, it wasn't my second career. I just didn't, it just wasn't something that occurred to me as a child. Okay, so what was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? My first memory of a library is going to story time. Um, I don't remember who exactly brought me. It was probably my babysitter or my grandmother. Um, but uh, the librarian's name, I think, was Mrs. Hand. Um, well, that's kind of creepy. I, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, so when you were when you decided to work in the library, you know, what made you make that decision? And if it wasn't your first career path, which you know, like I said before, many librarians choose it as a second career. What was the the first path? I decided I wanted to be a librarian um, after I I saw the professional response to the USA Patriot Act, um, the the professional opposition to it. I thought that was really bold, especially since we were in a, a political climate where dissent of any kind was um, pretty much shunned. And so for a whole profession to come out and say that they opposed uh, this this overbroad law and they, they kind of saw the writing on the wall of what it really meant, I, I thought that was really awesome. Um, and it was my first career. Wow. That's a rarity. That's pretty impressive, actually. Uh, so who is your favorite fictional librarian? Probably um, Parker Posey's character in Party Girl. Okay, we've had that. I think we had one person who had that answer before, but it's not one of the more popular ones. Um, and what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Or Well, I don't work in a library. Right. So if I were not working in a library, I'd be working on Library Freedom Project, which is what I do. Okay. Uh, and what is your favorite section of the library? Um, probably the 900s, the later 900s. History, history, huh? Yeah. And if you had infinite space and budget and you could build your own library, what would you put in it? I would put in, um, facilities for patrons who are experiencing homelessness, like, um, uh, places where they can, um, heat up their food and, you know, use a shower if they want to, um, and maybe even something like, um, I forget the names of the, the nonprofits that do this, but those, um, it's like a ready-to-work type thing where they give you clothing for job interviews and things like that. Um, so having a, a thing like that. Um, and also part of the budget would be a full-time social worker um, to assist with the needs of patrons who... Um, need some kind of social services and have no access to them. 
Okay, now this is probably more regarding if you visit your local library. What do you love about your library? Um, it's really close to my house. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, the library has been such a big part of my life, um, especially my adult life, that it's really hard to say what I love about it the most. But, um, you know, libraries, I think, broadly speaking, we really take for granted um, in society that they exist. But I, I think it's a, it's a, to me, it's, it's remarkable that they still exist, given the way that the public sector has been totally decimated and how everything, um, every kind of social service, especially anything that is, um, uh, that serves the poor, um, has been just completely removed. And so for libraries to persevere, I think is really extraordinary. So that's probably what I love most about it. Okay, so what, when you were working in a library, what was the weirdest thing that ever was ever, that has ever happened to you in a library, or happened in the library, not necessarily to you? God, I feel like I had, you know, really boring library experiences. I mean, um, you know, one time, um, one time we had like a, I mean, I guess this is not really weird. It was just maybe the most extraordinary thing, like a, a missing person who had last been seen in the library. But, you know, it was mostly um, kind of like a, a, an, a scary and anxiety-provoking thing. So I don't know if weird is really the right way to talk about it. But I guess things like that happen all the time in the library. Okay. When you worked in a library, did you have a, a favor, favorite regular patron who came in? Um, I had a lot of favorites. I mean, there were a lot of people who would seek me out because I had a, a specialized knowledge set about privacy and technology and stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I think about the whole group. I really, um, liked that, that, that those people all challenged my thinking around the kind of, um, the typical way that people talk about, um, how the public cares about privacy, that like no one cares and you won't be able to get people to care that, that my regular patrons showed me that that wasn't true. And our last question is, what are people without library cards missing out on? Um, uh, free stuff, um, <laughs> community. Um, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, librarians are, an extraordinary resource. Uh, libraries are a space that one of the very few spaces in, in the 21st century that makes no demands on your time other than like, you know, basic kind of basic sort of social things like, you know, don't, you know, don't harass people or whatever kind of like really sort of low level stuff that's in our codes of conduct. Um, it's the only place that you can go where you can just sit and be quiet if you want to. Um, you don't have to buy anything. Um, you don't have to do anything. So I think um, it's a it's a, a place that that is without parallel in modern society. Well, thanks for being such a good sport and answering our list of questions. Um, and it's really been great having you on the podcast. Um, so the Library Freedom Project's website is libraryfreedomproject.org where you can find out more about Allison and the project. Uh, and the tour, the tour project also... Uh, wait, I just lost the link there, so give me one second. 
It's uh, tourproject.org, right? That's right. Okay, great. So check out all these great things and um, give a look. And if you're looking to have someone speak uh, regarding internet privacy with your organization, uh, what was your email address again? Info at libraryfreedomproject.org. Great. Thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. So that's just about all the time we have for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on the show, please go to the contact section of our website at thelibrarypros.com, where we'll also have notes and links from all of our episodes. And you can also check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And please don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, soon-to-be Apple Podcasts, Android, email, and Google Play. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, if Bob were here, and not of those of the Station Public Library, the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pitbit Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.